The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video. As seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. So we are back for another episode of the Video Insiders. Dror, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you today, Mark? Hey, I'm doing very well. I uh, understand you're spending a little bit of time in the U.S. following the SPIE conference. Yeah, I'm still here in the U.S., uh, enjoying the fabulous uh, weather of uh, end of August and uh, deep into uh, preparations uh, for IBC, like uh, many of our colleagues, right? Let's jump right in. We have an, an amazing guest. We are talking to Dan Rayburn today, and uh, I think all of our listeners know Dan, uh, certainly know who he is, uh, read his blog, uh, very familiar. Definitely one of the top video insiders. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So um, yeah, welcome, Dan. It's really great to have you on the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Tell us what you've been doing, um, you know, with with your new event and um, just, uh, I guess, kind of bring everybody up to speed and then let's jump right into this uh, direct-to-consumer topic. Sure. So yeah, I do wear a lot of hats in the industry. People ask me, number one question, do I ever sleep? Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> uh, second, you know, what is your job? You, you're doing all these different things. And, and I always say it's really simple. It's just like in the military where you have an ethos of what a unit or group does. My job is to inform, educate, and empower others. That's it. That's the way I see it. Now, sometimes I'm doing that with institutional money managers on Wall Street. I do a lot of work there, helping educate them on both infrastructure topics and video topics because they're invested in companies where you know they don't use their products and services. They don't know the competitive landscape or pricing. So I spend a lot of time with Wall Street. Uh, second, I spend a lot of time, obviously, on the blog, streammediablog.com, writing about Topics I find interesting that have to do with the more so the business uh, of what's taking place in the industry behind the scenes. Why are these services doing well or poorly from either a technical or business standpoint? So the blog is another big piece of it. And then I spend a lot of time as a principal analyst at Frost and Sullivan putting out research on size of markets. It's, it's great that we're all talking about the success in the market, but we also have to be realistic in terms of how successful can we be over the next few years. What are the growth rates? What are the restraints and drivers of any market you're in, whether it's transcoding, whether it's content delivery, media management, ingestion, the whole video stack. Uh, so that's that's another piece I spend a lot of time doing. And I spend a ton of time just talking to the media, right? The media is writing so many articles about Disney Plus and Apple Plus that they need to be educated on how the services work and competitive difference and what is original content cost. So I do a lot of work on CNBC, going on TV quite a bit talking to members of the media, probably three to 400 media interviews a year. That's uh, amazing. And then I do consult to certain companies in the space. Most of them are content owners. So for instance, uh, the Super Bowl, you know, CBS months before the Super Bowl hired me as a consultant to help look at their video workflow and their video stack. And because my background is in live events from the original days, you know, I love the live event business. It's you get one chance, one chance only to get it right. It's complex when you're talking live versus on demand. So sometimes I do consult the content owners like that. And then separately, you mentioned in the beginning my new show. So when I left streamingmedia.com, I guess about almost two years ago now, a little over a year and a half ago, you know, I really wanted to educate a larger audience with more focused content and bring 
a different level of events to the industry. So there's a lot of events in the industry around streaming and OTT, but they're really poorly produced, frankly. They are sticking eight people on a, on a panel session in 50 minutes, right? Yes. And the reason they do that is because they want to put in their speaker lineup. Look at all these great speakers we have. Yeah, well, yeah. you only have time for intros and that's it. Right, and that's it. You don't get into Q&A and also no offense against vendors because you guys are obviously one of them in the space, but people are paying money to come here about real world use cases by customers. Right. So a panel full of five leading industry vendors in the space all saying how great a topic is doesn't bring a real discussion to the forefront of what's really taking place in the industry. So yeah. I basically went to the NAB and said the NAB is the largest show around as far as having to do with video and traditional broadcast, of course, and radio. And I said, if we overlay all the marketing resources and reach that the NAB has between the Vegas show in April and the New York show in October, and you start creating content that is bespoke and customized to the attendee, you will, in a very short period of time, have a really, really good show because this is the content that your audience is looking for. And I give the NAB credit, right? They're a nonprofit, which most people don't realize. And they're an association that spends a lot of their time lobbying for radio and, and broadcasters. But on the show side, yeah. they realize this is where the show content is headed, whether we want it to or not. So when we came up with the idea, we did a quick pop-up show for one day in Vegas uh, two years ago. That was sort of just to let people know what's coming. The show we just did in, in Las Vegas in April, you know, you had every major OTT platform there. You know, you yes. had Hulu, you had Amazon Prime Video, you had PlayStation View, you had AT&T, you had Sling TV. On top of that, you had CBS, you had Fox, you had Disney. You had all the vendors in the space, many of them talking about real-world case studies and whatnot. So my job, as I see it, is to bring that education level to another space in the industry. And when I kicked off my show in August, I said, uh, sorry, in April, I said, first thing I said on stage is, you know, thank you for coming. And why do we need another one of these shows? Right. <laughs> Don't we have sorry. enough shows already to go to? But what I explained that's going to be different is it's going to be custom and bespoke. So every single person who buys a ticket to the show gets a direct email from me, not a form letter, thanking them for buying a ticket and asking them, what are they most interested in? How do I create the best program for you? Who do you want to meet before you come to the show? How do I help you set up meetings? And that, I think, is an, is an art to do in a market where everybody does conferences that are so automated and everything's cookie cutter and, okay, so-and-so sponsors the event so they get to take up all the time in the morning pitching their product, which is not why people bought a ticket. And tickets for most of these shows are 1000 bucks. So that's why we said, you know what? We're going to keep our $600. So the good news is, NEB is a great partner. They have such a reach. When they shoot out an email, it's incredible how many people it reaches across the world in different verticals and use cases. And the show continues to go to grow. So, so for the show in New York, I'm also going to take over some of the main stage with keynotes. And then in Vegas next year, we'll grow it again with additional content. And also some of the keynotes will be on the, the Vegas main stage, which is about 900 seating wise. So the caliber of folks that we're getting when you're getting senior executives now from companies that typically don't speak at shows like Amazon prime video, that is something that really shows you that there's a need in the market. So that's really what I'm working really hard on every day. That, that's really interesting. I think, uh, and, and if you, if you look at the parallel between, uh, the, the streaming part, you know, taking the main stage at New York and then at uh, Las Vegas, uh, 
the streaming um, event being a larger part of the regular broadcast event, it's in parallel to uh, streaming services and OTT, direct-to-consumer, being a larger part of the overall broadcast industry. And if you look at NAB in, in general, you know, you see less and less technologies that are related to the older delivery mechanisms like over-the-air cable satellite and more and more internet and IP and direct-to-consumer. So uh, it's really interesting that uh, this, this content that, that you are bringing uh, uh, to the show is indeed eating up more and more space and more time um, out of the whole show because this is actually what is happening in the industry. And this is the most interesting and fastest growing segment of the industry. It absolutely is. And also, you know, I think NBC is a great example, right? NBC has been going to the NEB show for probably since inception, right? But now look what's happening with NBC and Disney. These guys have completely changed. As we all know, AT&T is now a content owner. The entire messaging and topic at the NEB and other shows is completely shifting because these companies are turning into media companies, Mm-hmm. which used to be carrier companies, wireless companies, and ISPs, and media companies are completely changing to direct cons- to consumer, as we all know. So, yeah, the timing is perfect. The resources the NAB has is great. They're a good partner. So my job is just to grow this show organically, show by show by show, make it be- a little bit better every time, no rush here, uh, and just continue to build it over a long period of time to provide great content to, to users. Yeah, that, that's that's really wonderful. And, and if we look at the whole, the whole broadcast industry, we're really seeing recently a flood of announcement in the direct-to-consumer space. Uh, we used to have, uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Vudu, um, and now um, almost every broadcaster, every content owner wants to go direct-to-consumer and provide the content over the top. So um, it's really hard to keep track of, of all of those uh who do you think are the major ones that, that you are tracking that are the most interesting? Well, I think you have to break out the market, right? So we have members in the media who obviously don't track this stuff like you and I do every day. They don't eat, sleep, and breathe video. So, oh, Disney Plus is coming out. It's going to put Netflix out of business or it's going to take their share. And it's like, well, you have to stop and think here. Disney Plus is only targeting families, right? They're never going to create an orange is the new black for Disney Plus because they're not looking at that style of content. So consumers are going to have a lot of choice in the market, more than we have now, which is great for all of us because I think we all as consumers would say we love choice. But with that choice comes fragmentation. So you're really going to have to decide as a consumer, what content do you really, really like to watch? Movies, TV shows, original series, live streaming, you know, live TV, sporting events. And how much do you want to spend a month? And I think the biggest thing we're going to see is churn. And by that, I mean, because you can binge watch, what stops you from binge watching your next HBO Max series you love for a month and then stopping that subscription and binge watching Apple for two months and then going to Netflix and then jumping back when these new series come out? You can turn these services on and off so quickly. So I think that's great for consumers. It's not so great for the services themselves because it's going to be very hard for them to figure out what their real growth is over time. I think an interesting point that validates that is Hulu. Hulu no longer breaks out how many subscribers they have for live streaming. They don't give that number out anymore. Remember they said a million at the end That's of last right. year. They yeah. will no longer give that number out. When I asked yeah. why, they said because people to live turn the service on and off so often. 
So we don't think it's a meaningful statistic anymore because you'll see people stop it for three months, turn it on for four, stop it for two, and they make a good point. Now, I'd still like to know the numbers. (laughs) I'd like to know the trends as an analyst. But I I think the ones to watch are the ones that really have content that consumers want to pay for and have a way to market in a different way. Disney obviously will be a main major player and winner in this space because they can cross-promote it at action parks, toys, movies, cruises, all the ways Disney has to get their brand in front of consumers, which they're already doing today. Mm -hmm. The other thing is Disney, like Amazon, they don't have to make and don't make the majority of their revenue from a streaming service. So even if Disney wanted to lose money over time with Disney Plus because it made up money someplace else or generated revenue someplace else or reduced churn for some other service they had, they could do that. I'm not saying they will because I think Disney Plus will make money for them. But my point is, like with Amazon, they have that as a business model. Netflix doesn't. Netflix's only primary business and 100% of their revenue comes from a streaming service. So who I'm looking at in the market, who I'm watching is everybody, right? (laughs) Disney Plus, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. You got to watch FUBU. Um, I'm still watching Sling TV. Uh, AT&T, that's a nightmare. We'll talk about that later probably. Um, Quibi, I don't think that model will work, but certainly watching them. Um, You know, you have some interesting things coming out with NBC next year. They'll talk about more of that soon. You know, Sinclair has been interesting because – They've been going local after local markets, which is sometimes an untapped market. And so it's an interesting one, right? They're taking a bit of a different approach. Uh, but a lot of these companies, frankly, they're still trying to figure out their strategy. They're still trying to figure out the best way to package, price, productize, market, and sell their service. And Disney has a three-legged approach. If you're families or just Star Wars nerds that are older, you're going to love Disney+. Plus. If you're really into sports, you got ESPN+. Plus. If you want a full linear lineup or you want a deep back catalog of TV shows and movies, you got Hulu and you have Hulu Live. That's their three-tiered approach in the market, and they're pretty much reaching every consumer you can possibly think of for the most part. That's very different than other services that roll out in the market that are really targeting everybody. You know, think Amazon or Netflix. They have to create content. And, and spend a lot in original content creation to reach the widest possible audience because Amazon and Netflix have such a diverse group of users. Whereas at least Disney can focus its original content creation and, and where they spend their money on very niche or more niche, more focused verticals like Disney Plus, where they know what they're creating because they know who their audience is. The other thing I love about Disney Plus before they even came out, what did they say? They said, oh, by the way, 100% of our catalog would be available for download for offline viewing. Yeah, that's amazing. That's cool. They're thinking about their user experience from day one. And none of that should surprise anybody in the industry because they bought BAMTech. And BAMTech, the way I always describe them is they are the special forces of our industry. They have the most experience. They have the most resources. They rolled the first OTT product out in the market, the first real video product at scale with MLB.TV, what is this now, 17 years ago, 18 maybe? Mm-hmm. They are the best at what they do, hands down. And for Disney, for Iger to go, you know, if we're really going to get into this game and digital is our future, we better make sure that the underlying video platform and stack that we have is the best in the business. And who's the best at that? BamTech. That's the most genius acquisition we've seen in our industry in 10 years. 
Yeah, that was a sign. I, I I do agree with you. I in my mind, when that acquisition happened, um, you know, and there was there, and there's still, you know, sometimes I read articles about, oh, you know, D- Disney's a studio. What can they know? Or maybe less people are not naming Disney because I think to say that Disney isn't going to do very well is kind of not a smart thing to say, (laughs) but, um, in general, you know, I hear comments about, you know, studios, you know, they're not technology companies are ultimately going to fail the tech, you know, that kind of line of thinking. And the reality is, is that when Disney, you know, bought BAM, um, that was a huge sign that they're, you know, very serious. First of all, is an expensive acquisition, like $3 billion. Um, but, um, they are, they're the special forces and now they can compete, you know, almost overnight, you know, at the flip of a switch and say, yes, we can reach the same scale. We can reach the same quality. We can do everything that you're doing, you know, whoever that is that they're comparing to and more even potentially. Yes. And, 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 and I think what's great about that argument is people go, well, Disney is a technology company. They don't get this. They're a hundred percent right. But here's the difference. Disney understood that, which is why they bought the best company in the industry, right? AT&T wanted to roll out a streaming service. What did they do? They bought, <laughs> they bought a, a satellite company. company. <laughs> right. They bought a satellite company. Uh, that didn't work well. And then they bought a small company who had a poor technology platform that they built direct now on top of that completely failed. And now they're building out an entire new stack for the new HBO Max that's coming out at some point next year. Mm-hmm. Now, why would you build this in-house when you are a telecommunications company and a network provider, because AT&T still is the largest network in, in North America, that is not your expertise. And that shows the difference between Disney and others is Disney realized we're not good at this. It's not what we do. So we better go out and make sure we find somebody where this is all they do for a living. I think something that also is getting lost is is that there is a there's a distinct difference. And, and you hit on this, Dan, when you said that Disney has multiple ways to monetize, whereas Netflix, they have one way to monetize. That is um, create content or license content for some cost and then turn around and sell that and get more than what they pay to either create, you know, a license, whatever. And, and that's it. That is their business model. There's a big difference between the aggregators who started. Um, so, you know, Vudu and uh, uh, Amazon Prime Video and obviously Netflix and even Hulu um, and these direct-to-consumer, which direct-to-consumer, you know, is about impl- it implies that I have content that I own, and now rather than a wholesale channel where I'm licensing to a pay TV network, I'm I'm offering it direct to you know, and I'm delivering it direct as well. You know, I'm actually responsible for that delivery. Are you drawing the lines also between, I'll just say, like the aggregators and the actual content owners who are going direct or? Yeah, it's a great question, right? I mean, you know, we've been talking about aggregating in this market forever, but what is an aggregator? Depends on who you ask. So to me, an aggregator is Comcast because look at the X1 platform. It's got all these streaming apps bundled into it. Now, I think what we're missing in the industry is reality, right? I think people are delusional to some degree. And it seems that when you write something that has some some thought behind it and is realistic, people don't like that because they want to talk about things that are going to happen in this market because it sounds great and they're excited about it. Well, I'm excited as well, but we have to set proper expectations in the market. If we don't, 
Look what happened in the dot-com days. I don't want to ever go back to those days because it was money that was wasted by so many companies who had great ideas, but an idea doesn't make a business. So the reason I bring that up is you have all these people with aggregation saying, well, at some point, somebody's going to design a service that's going to allow you to sign up for Disney, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, all in one place. And I keep going, well, first of all, if you think that these companies are going to work together, you, you just – I'm sorry. There's something wrong in your brain to yeah. think that. It's just not going to happen. And second, there's no business value to those companies of doing that. So yeah. what, what people don't understand outside of our industry, which they shouldn't as a consumer. They don't understand the business economics of this industry. These companies are not doing what's best for customers. They're doing what's best for their business. They are yeah. companies that have shareholders. So when people say things like, well, when the NFL rights come up to TV, Google or Amazon or somebody is going to bid $20 billion and they're going to stream this stuff online. And you stop and you go, well, now, why would they do that when the NFL would lose money by licensing yeah. it online? Because those online can't pay the same rates to write, license the content that broadcasters can't. Now, what is in the best interest of NFL of losing billions of dollars per year? And people will go, well, that's what consumers want. But this isn't about what consumers want. This is about rolling out a service that has a good user experience that hopefully can make these guys money. Hulu is losing so much money right now. Think about it. Hulu is a great service. Love it. I love it for live, on demand. They're losing a ton of money. Disney lost half a billion dollars last year just on Hulu and BamTech alone. So – these services take a lot of money, billions of dollars to get up to the size and scale that, that some of these companies want to get to. Disney's hoping to get to 50 million subs for Disney Plus in three years. Netflix, we already know, is well over 100, what, almost 150 million now or more globally. I, I think even approaching 160, right? Wow. Globally. So just, I, I mean, mean yeah, scale is incredible, huge. right? Yeah, scale is amazing. Thing. So yeah. aggregation, when you say aggregation, I think you have to define it. And I think the way most people think aggregation is the way Apple did iTunes. And everybody expected Apple to follow the iTunes model for video, but what they didn't realize was the music industry wanted Apple's help. The music industry looked to Apple for the hardware device and the platform and iTunes and purchasing to make it all simple. They were okay with Apple dominating the music industry because of how they benefited. The video world, the content, the broadcasters, they don't want Apple in control. So the idea that they would let Apple aggregate all this uh, isn't going to happen. Now, yes, Apple's an aggregator, so to speak, in that when you turn on the Apple TV, you can see all this different content available and whatnot, but that's not really an aggregator the way we think of it in the industry. So sure. they want to go direct to consumer. They're smart because if you're Disney, you already own the consumer. Yeah. They know your brand. So what is the value of going through a third party? There isn't one. Aggregation in itself has value because... Like if I go to Comcast yeah. and with a single service, single sign-on, single device, I can watch all these different types of content. It's it's uh, it's very convenient for me. But if I have to install on my streamer or uh, uh, Apple TV device, whatever, I need to install the Disney app, the Apple app, the CBS app, the ESPN app, all of those, and then I need to think each content. Where do I find it? How do I discover it? That becomes a problem and discoverability. Um, and ease of use because of a single account is is um, a, a real problem that the consumer want to have it in a single place. The uh, brands want to go direct to consumer each with their own app. 
how how do you think this will this will play out i mean uh, man, different I, forces I, pulling here i think you raise a great point on discoverability right that that is a huge issue and it's something that all these services are trying to do a better job across their platform but you're you're really saying discoverability across all the platforms at the same time no doubt that is a problem in the market part of the problem too as you know is we have no standards in our in our world so there's no metadata standard right that these guys are sharing there's some that's coming out um We have no standard bitrate, protocol, aspect ratio, player, nothing. Yeah, okay, maybe we move forward with everything that the Alliance for Open Media is doing, and maybe AV1 starts to become a codec yeah, standard uh, down the line. AV1 is just a codec. It doesn't tell right, you what bitrate to use, what resolution. Yeah. So, you know, we come from the broadcast world. A lot of people in this industry come from the broadcast world. And when you turn on TV and you go to an HD, HD channel, you know what that means. Like it's a standard in our world. I don't know what the hell HD is online anymore. And you have guys like Microsoft and they build a player, you know, they put HQ in the corner because it's high quality. Well, what's the difference between high quality and high definition? Well, it's a fair point and nobody wants to agree on it. Is it bit rate? Is it aspect ratio? How do you define QOE in our industry? Which we're only just now starting to talk about in, in true methodology form. But your, your whole point in aggregation, it's totally valid. Discoverability is very hard today. Uh, and that's why you also see a lot happening with, with voice. So what I found real interesting at the last show that we did was uh, we had somebody on stage from Amazon talking about what they're doing with Hulu when it comes to voice. And it was incredible that Hulu, Hulu was talking about, I forget the exact number, but it was something like people who are using voice to find things were watching 40% more Hulu content. Amazing. And that wow. is really incredible. So at the show in October, we're going to have somebody from Amazon come and talk specifically about how they're working with OTT providers to create an easier way for people to find better content and do better discovery that is much more natural. The other thing is somebody like my mom could easily use her voice to find more content. Good luck trying to get her to type everything into a search bar sure. on a Roku, sure. right? So I, I think voice makes total sense. But, you know, your original question was aggregation and what that looks like. I think it's just as fragmented years from now uh, as it is today. I wonder what the reality is going to be as these subscriptions begin to stack up. And, and there's just the, the, the pain of managing them, uh-huh. which brings us back to this aggregation discussion where, you know, is there even a new a whole new sector that's going to emerge, a whole new product, a whole new service, something. Because I agree with you, you know, the utopia that, oh, I'm going to have this unified um, uh, UI, you know, this UX and all my Netflix content and all my Disney Plus and all my HBO Max and come into it. I mean, that's just crazy talk. I mean, that's never going to happen. Yes, that's Nirvana. It's never going to happen. But there is the reality of like, You know, who can manage all this for me, you know, because that's going to be a challenge. So that's interesting you bring that up because I never really thought of the management because if if somebody has, consumer has three or four services, I don't think it's difficult to manage. And I think if they have three to four services, they're using them often, which is why they keep them, which means it's probably easy for them to turn them on and off and cancel them when they need to. I think the other thing on the management side is keep in mind that many of these streaming services don't have open APIs. So... Even if another company wanted to go build a management system just to allow you to track all your subscription services, you're not going to get access to that because they're not going to give you an API to pull in any information. 
Have you seen any studies, Dan, around this? You know, I know there's been a lot of studies of how many subscriptions a household. Yeah, those studies are worthless. 99% of the data on our industry is garbage because you have that study that came out the other day that said, you know, the average consumer only wants to spend $22 a month on all their streaming services combined. Well, asking consumers what they want to spend, that's not reality because the reality is how many of them have a have a Spotify or Pandora account yeah. today at fifteen dollars yeah. a month plus Netflix at fifteen dollars you're already at thirty bucks yeah so yeah yeah hundred percent these reports that ask somebody like what would they like to do oh, you know think insane. of the cord cutting right yeah. you go out to consumers and it was like twenty percent of all consumers are going to cut the cord like they want to well yeah. the reality yeah. is they didn't but the yeah. other thing on the cord cutting that you asked before you know which is interesting if you look at just Q2, between Dish, Comcast, Spectrum, DirecTV, and Verizon, yeah, they lost one about 1.5 million pay TV subscribers in Q2. If you add in the amount of streaming subscriptions that DirecTV now lost, in addition, you're at about 2 million total losses in Q2 alone. However... Hulu Live, PlayStation View, FUBU, and the other live streaming services, Sling TV, they didn't get 2 million new signups. So for all the people saying, oh, okay, these people are cutting the cord and they're going to streaming services, many of them are not going to streaming services at all. They're just cutting mm-hmm. the cord because they no longer have time to view content. Yeah, They've decided to view other kinds of content. they got a new job. They're moving. And the thing I love about cord cutting stats is – like, I know a nice elderly couple in their 90s that moved out of their home after 50 years and went to an assisted living facility. They cut the Verizon subscription that they had at their house, their, their, their internet service. They are now seen, because they also cut pay TV, as a cord cutter. Now, they're living in an old folks' home. They didn't yeah. then supplement that with a streaming service. Yeah. So you have cord cutters also from an age standpoint that cut the cord that don't replace it. But our industry looks at anybody who cut the cord – as somebody who then went to streaming, reality is that's not the case. So the cord cutting numbers are actually lower when you're talking about streaming replacing pay TV. What always amazed me about uh, the cable and satellite services in the U.S. that they are kind of double dipping. You pay a subscription fee, and then you watch advertisements on those uh, channels, even the the native cable and satellite channels, not only the the broadcast uh, commercial channels that they pass through. Um, in Israel, it's not like that. I mean, if you if you have a satellite or cable subscription, of course, they pass all the uh, commercial channels. They broadcast them. But any uh, movie channel, family channel, HBO, things like that are, are um, ad-free. Because but that's pay- not their problem, right? That, that's not the cable <laughs> TV problem. That is the content owners who charge so much to license the content that you have no choice but to include ads with it. And do you, do you think this is something that will happen in over-the-top services as well? Do you see Netflix or somebody else does, uh, starting to do advertising? No, Netflix can't do advertising. They, they just can't. And I don't mean from a technical standpoint. From a business standpoint, it would have such an impact on the churn of their service. And they came out in their last investor shareholder letter and specifically said, you know, I know we've seen you've seen some reports about us getting to advertising. I forget the exact language they used because it was funny because they made it so stern that they're not going to do it because it's one of the things that 
people really love from a behavioral standpoint about the Netflix service is the lack of ads. And, and I think what's really missing in our industry right now is nobody that I've seen has done any behavioral research on how consumers select one service over the another. So typically consumers, all of us as humans, typically make a decision based on two things, either something we like or something we don't like. That is typically what drives us because we have emotions tied to the decision-making process. That's just the reality of what we are as humans. So what is it about these services that says, oh, I really like that one from an emotional standpoint? And I know it sounds pretty silly, you know, emotions when we're talking about this, but that is what Netflix has data on is that people sign up for the service specifically because it doesn't have commercials and they don't want to have to sit through them. And that's why Netflix is so adamant that they're not going to bring commercials to the platform. So they feel, and they have the underlying data to prove it, of course we wish they would share it with us, that if we added commercials, here's how many of the users would churn from our service, would cancel our service, and even if we sell X percentage of advertising at this CPM targeted to this user, the amount of money we make from ag- advertising wouldn't benefit the service from a PL standpoint. Like this is a strategic business decision that they've made. So for people to then question them, the industry, like the media does like, Oh, Netflix are idiots. They don't include advertising. They would just boost their revenue just by doing that. They're not looking at the entire picture. They're making a decision based on only part of the data. So Netflix, no, I don't think they add advertising. They've been very adamant about it. The other services well, every live linear service has advertising. If we think about the on-demand services, we know Quibi will have it. We know NBC will have it. Uh, we know Hulu has it. Of course, they have the ad-free, but you pay more. So pretty much all the other services already have advertising outside of Disney, um, Netflix, Amazon. We don't know exactly what Warner Media is going to be doing yet since they're – or sorry, HBO Max, since that's kind of all over the place right now. But a good portion of them already have the advertising. I think the other, you know, the other challenge when we're talking about advertising on digital is the CPMs are just so darn low. Uh, yeah. I mean, the reality is, and you know, t- um, TV uh, CPMs are, um, and I don't have right at my fingertips what the, it, but it's orders of magnitude higher. I mean, I mean, multiples, you know, higher. So that makes it a challenge too. Like, okay, what's your ad load going to be? to really make, you know, generate the revenue that you need. I'm speaking on OTT, you know, when your CPMs are as low as they are. So you know, advertising is an entirely <laughs> subject we could talk about for an entire day that frustrates the hell out of me. <laughs> I am so tired of seeing the same ad 10 times in a row. I'm so tired mm. of all the ad companies and the vendors in this space running around talking about targeted micro targeting. Yes. That's total BS. You're not doing it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at scale. And when you go out and you talk to the CDNs that actually deliver all this video, they will be the first ones to admit that ad partners we work with can't do this at scale. <laughs> it's not a secret. Just ask the people who are actually on the front lines of this stuff. Actually and delivering the bits. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. It's like low latency, right? And she's yeah. running around going, yeah, yeah. about low latency. I did a survey, hundreds of customers. 80% of them said, if I wanted low latency, I'm not going to pay more for it. It should yeah. come as part of my delivery service. So that's the first problem. Second is the people who said they need it were only for very specific applications. And then the third problem is go and ask Akamai, Limelight, and the others who are doing low latency today. They, they are totally upfront and open and honest that doing it at scale is yeah. extremely difficult and yeah. very expensive. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the thing that, that I like too about the low latency discussion is, is that rarely, you know, so especially when you go to a show and, and there's some vendor, you know, showing their low latency solution. Well, they're, it's not an end to end measurement. So yeah, maybe they're little tiny slice of, of the entire distribution chain that, that those bits have to travel through. Maybe they've optimized, but yet HLS is still, you know, 16 to, to 19 seconds. I mean, that's, you know, and, and forget, yes, Apple has their low latency, you know, and, and there's certainly some people doing some interesting things, but HLS, which is the dominant way to deliver, um, you know, adapted bitrate streaming content is you can't get it lower than like 15, 16 seconds. I mean, it's yeah, just, you know, you're so, absolutely right. So and, and you bring up a great point, the workflow, right? We talk about these services, but the workflow is complex. There's a lot of moving pieces, as you guys yeah. well know, you tie into a lot of workflows. And to your point, it's great that somebody has a low latency transcoding, whatever, but then they're not thinking about the player or how they're chunking bits at the end that has an yeah. impact to your point, which H- HLS, and they're not yeah. thinking about the delivery network. And then you have some that are saying, well, we have an end-to-end system from ingestion, transcoding, delivery that's tied into one platform that can do low latency. But the problem is you can't do that at scale. So when I see some transcoding companies and others out in the market, I won't mention them for name and call them out here, um, who are out there saying, well, you know, we think with our low latency solution, we can easily deliver a billion streams for a live event. And, you know, if the Super Bowl went online and it was online only and you had half a billion people watching simultaneous, simultaneously, we could do it with low latency. And I just stop and I think and I go, who are the investors that gave you money? <laughs> are, are they, what the hell were they thinking? Are they completely just like head in the sand? Because all you need to do is talk to a few key people, anybody yeah. who actually is building this stuff for a living. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean me. I mean, go talk to the people. I get my information from at Apple or Netflix or whoever's building this stuff. We're yeah, the real right. leaders in this industry and ask them what's actually going on. The idea that streaming media as a technology can replace cable or pay TV yeah. technology with the same quality, reliability and scale is absolutely factually wrong. And I love that people want to argue with me about it because you can't argue numbers. And they always come out and say, well, you remember video codec bit rates, you know, they're going to improve 50% every three years. And it's like, guys, you don't get it. That's just one piece of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If you go talk to a local ISP, they're not increasing their capacity or the amount of ports they're taking from transit providers by 50% every three years. So it's great. Maybe you can fix one piece of the workflow, but in order for streaming to work, as we all know, you have to have a workflow that has all the different pieces tied in. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, Dan, let's uh, now that we're sort of talking about uh, infrastructure and and the technical aspect of delivering the bits that all these services, you know, are going to need. We already talked about Disney and their acquisition of BAM. Let's do a quick survey of some of the other players, and I'll let you kind of pick some out. Yeah, so keep in mind that, yeah, they're in good shape, but obviously Disney doesn't deliver the stuff themselves yet. So what Disney is doing is when they roll out, I've already blogged this in detail, they're going to roll out with Level 3 and Akamai as primary CDNs, Disney Plus, and then they're going to add Fastly and Limelight, especially as they go international as well. Mm. Uh, and they 
I would be surprised if they use Fastly for their Origin Shield project uh, product, which which helps sort of route traffic in the best ways and mm-hmm. some other things. So Disney does rely on some vendors, obviously, for helping to build their stack and delivery. Right now, they're not doing. However, Disney is building out their own CDN. Mm-hmm. This this is not um, you know something people should be de- debating. People on Wall Street, Piper Jaffe recently put out a report that I just tore apart on my blog because they're saying Disney's not smart enough to have their own CDN five years from now. And it's like, well, guys, you know, they're probably not aware of this. And I won't mention the person's name because it's they don't haven't started yet. But you know, Disney's already hired somebody to build out their CDN. They they just hired them. And they also have extremely smart people at Disney who, by the way, the Streaming Video Alliance has an open caching working group. And the technical specs were written by who? Disney. (laughs) They were written by Mamtech. Well, I mean, Joe Manzarello is on the board, right? Right. Joe Joe is on the board. And and his guy is the guy who wrote the specs. So it's like, guys, come on. Like. Disney is going to deliver this stuff at some point themselves. Now, maybe not everything. They might take the Apple approach where Apple brings 90% of its traffic in-house by volume. But yeah. the other thing is you have people out there going, well, you know, Disney's not going to spend $2 billion to replicate what Akamai has. Well, why would they? Disney from Disney Plus only has to deliver on-demand content. They don't have to do live. They don't have to do mm-hmm. ingestion. They don't have to do ad insertion. They have to do what Netflix did at a smaller scale. When Netflix rolled out OpenConnect, Keep in mind, Netflix built out a CDN to deliver 100% of their traffic in a two-year period. And at the time they did it, they accounted for like 38% of all peak traffic downstream at night in North America. Mm -hmm. Think of how much they built out and how quickly they did it at a fraction of the cost because it was what we call purpose-built. It was built just to do long-form, on-demand content for Netflix. So Disney at some point will have their own CDN doing all kinds of stuff. Um, you move into HBO Max. This this is an interesting one here because AT&T, I think, is still trying to figure out just everything. And we've seen them now announce a new, another new streaming service that's going to come out. And now they've <laughs> renamed DirecTV now. And then Warner Media was supposed to have a three-tier system, which they've now done away with. So HBO Standalone, let's just talk about them, recently brought a lot of their technical streaming in-house with a great team that built it out. They've talked publicly about a lot of this. So a lot of that has been moved away from, from Disney and is now within HBO. Uh, how that ties into HBO Max, we're not sure, because what I've heard is that AT&T is now building out a new platform for HBO Max because the platform they're using for DirecTV now, it just it doesn't work and it doesn't scale. They bought that company called, uh, do you guys remember, was it Active Video? or? Are you thinking Quick Play? Quick play. There you go. Yeah, quick, quick play. play. Yep. It didn't work. And that's why they struggled for over a year with problems with the service and outages and geofencing problems and stream issues. And so they're not going to rely on that. I also think it's interesting that AT&T owns iStream Planet now, right? Because they own yes. Turner and Turner. That's and yet right. they're, they're not going to use iStream Planet's platform. You know, iStream Planet is really a company that specialized in live streaming. That's really what they do for Turner. And when you think about AT&T's new service with HBO Mac or HBO Plus, it, it not HBO Plus. I'm so confused now. The name, see, it's like so. That's mostly on demand, right? So it would make sense you wouldn't use Ice Planet. However, however, we've now heard news reports that well, there's going to be some live channels available maybe in that offering. If we go to Quibi, Quibi's still to be proven. Now Quibi's gone out and hired a ton of smart people. They've pulled people from Amazon and Hulu and everywhere else. And I mean, Rob Post is you know Rob CTO Post, CTO. From Hulu. Yeah. Yep. And, 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 and very Rob, smart. 
Rob's built a great team over there, no yes. doubt. However, you know, it's an interesting dis- discussion with Quibi because you wonder how much of the business model dictates the technology that he's allowed, his team's allowed to build and what mm. it looks like. Because Quibi has said that they're looking to do something so different that they're looking to change consumers' habits on how they view content. Now, first and foremost, that's difficult. Second, you're looking to do it with short form, even more difficult. Third, you're paying way too much for content. Sorry, you are. The economics don't work. And fourth, when you come out and say things like, well, you know, if we have a horror movie done by Steven Spielberg, you're not going to be able to watch it during the day. We're only going to allow you to watch it at night because we want that to add to the excitement. I'm sorry. I, I get the artistic approach here, but you're now telling consumers about what points in the day they're allowed to watch something. (laughs) <laughs> now, to their credit, they say this is going to be very difficult to change consumers' habits for viewing short-form content, and especially on small screens. So they acknowledge it's going to be a problem. I don't think that's how you want to come out of the gate as a company, right? I, I think you come out, you, you show you can be successful with a business model and great content and gain subscribers, and then you think about ways maybe you can start to change consumers' viewing habits. I think doing all that from the beginning is difficult. So. I'm interested to see the service. I think the service is going to work really well. Rob's got a good team over there. They've hired a lot of great people. So to me, the technology is not the problem it could be. And they're not going to build their own CDN, of course. They'll work with the leaders out there. My problem with them is can they really prove their business model works, being that they've raised a billion and a half dollars? And the reports are that in some cases they're spending $20,000 a minute in terms of creating or licensing content. Those economics do not work from an ad standpoint. And they don't work if you're charging people $4, $5 a month. It doesn't work. And we saw that with Netflix. Why does Netflix raise prices? Because they keep saying content licensing costs or creation costs continue to rise. They never go down. So Quibi is an interesting one. Definitely one to watch. Do you have any insights, Dan, on Quibi as to what they're doing technically? That you can uh, share? Yeah, I won't go into that. Um, I don't don't know how much of that they want to make public. And right now they really don't. Um, Sure. If everything goes as planned, I'll have one of the executives, maybe even Rob, doing a fireside keynote chat in October at the show in New York. Awesome. Talking more about what they're building out. Uh, but some of the companies, like even Disney, before Disney Plus launches on November 12th, you know, are kind of shy in terms of what they want to say or speak to. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I'm super excited for the show in Vegas next year because mm-hmm. by then all the services are out. Even Apple, you know, I talked to Apple. They're like, hey, we're actually interested in coming and talking about what we're doing and how we're building out Apple. TV plus, but we can't tell it. We can't do it until the service is out. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You are going to hear more news about Apple soon. And I don't mean from like the press that we're hearing lately and what they're spending, but actually from Apple, you'll hear more news shortly, more about the service. So that'll be good. We then roll into Viacom and CBS way too early to know what's going to happen there. That deal's not going to close until the end of the year, or it's supposed to close. They're saying by the end of the year. And then sure. they have to figure out the different services. Now, CBS all access Showtime, CBS Sports, these guys are already doing a great job. They have said between Showtime and CBS All Access, they expect to have 25 million subs combined by 2022. They're still on track Mm. for that. Mm. CBS All Access works really well. It's a great service. Liz, who's the CTO over there, her and her team do a great job of putting great quality video in front of consumers in a really good user interface. Now, obviously, it doesn't have as much traction in the market because it's just CBS's content. And a lot of people, even these days, they don't typically know what broadcaster is providing the content to them. 
If you ask me what channel my favorite shows are on and from what broadcaster, I may not know. But it's a great service. They're doing well with the Star Trek stuff. Sounds like they might make some more of that content. Uh, CBS Sports is doing a great job as well. They just did the Super Bowl. Uh, I do know that across CBS as a whole, before the Viacom deal, that they are going to uh, standardize on a single cloud-based platform for all their services. Mm. Right now, they're using different things. And I think that's a trend we'll see more companies doing. Now, how Viacom ties into that, because if you think of Viacom, they have the Pluto TV side. That's right. Uh, and then they have the just the regular Viacom content as separate, really mostly authenticated channels through a pay TV provider. The Pluto TV thing is interesting. I think it's overhyped. You know, when the Viacom CFO says that he thinks Pluto TV is a billion-dollar business, but the revenue is $100 million when they acquired them, uh, there's a big disconnect there. And if you think it's a billion-dollar business, then tell us by when. Don't just say it's a billion-dollar business. Is that three years from now or are you talking 20 years from now? Well, and you know what comes to my mind, it goes back to the CPM question. You know, is it is it because he thinks that somehow he can get advertisers to pay more? Well, of course, they all you say know, that. I mean, yeah, you know, and get TV CPMs, you know, which, okay, maybe, but 10X, that's that's a big... Maybe you can, but how is that different from, from yeah. you know, Tubi? Tubi? How is yeah. it different from... Zumo, how's it different from the yeah. Roku channel? How's it different yeah. from Amazon IMDb? Yeah, uh, YouTube has their own free stuff. Like, yeah. there's ten companies now that are offering free content. Yeah, ad supported, yeah. AVOD. So I get it. I get that there's a market for it. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is, there's a lot of competition in that market, and I'm going to stick to the thing that we've been talking about since the late '90s with this industry, which is content is king. So I'm sorry, I just don't see enough of a market for people going to watch Gilgan's Island reruns. And your ad CPM on that cannot be great. So it's cool that Pluto got to 100 million last year, 150 million this year. I think the run rate is, you know, they've been around six, seven years. I think that's great. It's not a knock to them. They got acquired. Viacom can use it. But to then set that expectation that they think it's a billion dollar business Again, you can't set false expectations like that in this market because investors put money into things that get killed. You guys as vendors start investing in things that maybe don't actually come out. So you have an R&D problem. You have a product problem with a lot of vendors. Um, That's an issue in the market. And and I think the more realistic we are as an industry, the better. And now some people always say, Christ, Dan, everything you write in your blog is negative. And I'm like, you can't think of it that way. It's not negative. (laughs) <laughs> it's reality, right? And I'm like, why can't you talk more about, you know, the great thing that this company is doing? And I say, here's what. I'd love to, but the problem is that company won't give me real revenue. They won't tell me customers. They won't give case studies. So when they say, well, you should just say that our revenue grew 102%. 102% off what base? Yeah. If you're doing a million dollars a year, 102% doesn't matter. Yeah. So the problem is our industry is flooded with videos. Amazing. It's taking over the world. Everyone's making money. Meanwhile, almost every single company is losing money today and still has been for years. They're talking about how it's going to displace pay TV. Not going to happen. Um, somebody needs to like just tell the truth and, and realistically set expectations for investors and everybody else who are making decisions based on data in the market. So that quite frankly, is overinflated. So, so Dan, if we talk about realistic expectations about what will happen in the market, so you're saying uh, pay TV in its uh, normal form, like uh, 
cable broadcast will not be replaced. It will no. be uh, so. So these streaming services direct to consumer will add on um, to the traditional types of services. Now we're so we're seeing um, two different trends in the market. One of them is um, is consolidation, which we saw a few years back, where uh, telecommunication companies and uh, and broadcasters and content owners uh, consolidated because. Uh, the idea was that you need to have your own content in order to have a viable service of, of providing uh, content and aggregation to, uh, to, to the end user. And on the other hand, we've recently seen this explosion, like a big bang of all the different um, uh, content owners going direct to consumer and dozens and dozens of, of services. Right. So how do you see this playing out in, in the midterm and, and the long term? Are well, we going to see more consolidation, more fragmentation? It's a great question. I, I think we see more con- consolidation where it makes sense. But at this point, we're kind of, from a higher level, almost done, right? I mean, all the big deals have been done. Comcast, Time Warner, AT&T, HBO, Viacom, Showtime, CBS. They've wrapped up a lot of, of broadcasters and content owners and license holders for content in the last two years. We've seen quite a lot of consolidation already. You know, we saw Sky get acquired overseas. So I think there'll still be more where it makes sense. Um, I think what people have to realize many times, too, is these services, as they're described and as they're originally brought to the market, change so quickly that they don't end up being the, quote, killer of another service that people predict it to be. So, you know, Sling TV came to the market and started promoting a la carte streaming. Well, to you and me, a la carte means you pay for you want. But Sling TV, you have to buy bundles. Yeah, Every single right. live streaming service, you have to buy a bundle. And yet what they're saying is this is not like pay TV. No, you're exactly you like pay TV. Everything. The, the basic package is, is very wide and very expensive. Right. The only difference is you don't have contracts and you don't have hardware. Other than that, you're bundling. Streaming TV is the new pay TV bundle. I say that all the time. You, your bundling hasn't changed whatsoever, and yet you're calling it a la carte. So right away, the message is, we're promoting it at this, but by the way, you can't really buy it that way. You can't just pay for the channels that you want. But so, isn't, isn't it more flexible bundling with a lower base price? It is. It, no doubt that you can get into Sling TV now for, what is it, 25 bucks, 30 bucks. I mean, they raised their rates recently like everybody else. But the point is, are those the channels that are really driving usage? You'll notice none of these services in the market will tell you what their most popular channels are. Why? Well, because when it comes time to renegotiating licenses with the broadcasters, they don't want the broadcasters upping the rates, which they're already doing, if they find out their channel is the most popular. <laughs> and what does that tell you? It tells you the business model doesn't work for scale. Now, if you want to have two, three, four million subs, totally fine. But look at the live linear services. What are the most subs we have in the market? Sling TV with two point something million. That's it. At the end of last year, we had 7 million subs combined across six different live streaming services, Hulu, YouTube, FUBU, PlayStation View, add them all up, you had 7 million subs total. Well, DirecTV now has lost 600,000 subs in the last two quarters. FUBU won't say what their number is. Hulu's no longer giving out a number. YouTube has never said, so we just get the number you know, from people who know, but why aren't these companies shouting at the top of a mountain how great their services are doing? Because their services are not doing as well as they thought in some cases. Now, 
Hulu, I gave a huge amount of credit to because when they rolled out their live service, here was the best part. And I had a debate with them about this before they did it. They called it a beta service. Mm. Very smart because it set customer expectations that, hey, this is a service we think is great, but we're still working on it. So apologies if there's a problem or two. It's going to become better. When AT&T rolled out DirecTV Now, if you were at the PR launch, they said that it was going to forever change and revolutionize the way consumers consumed video. And for the next year, they apologized for it not working. And, and it goes down to there's not a right or wrong answer here. People love to argue in our industry about this or that. And I say, well, remember the music industry argued about people want to buy music, no people want to rent it. What did we find out? <laughs> people want to do both. Yeah, that's right. And it's also kind of goes along the lines of like when you see statistics where it's like CNN or somebody's talking about their reach, and then you go, yeah, but 25% of all of those people or, or TVs you have on CNN are inside airports. Are in airports, yeah. Exactly. They're inside bars. Like, yeah. again, we have to get down to what is the real business metrics of how to measure success of these services as an, and as an industry – we are struggling to do that because people don't truly want to give out the information. And I will compare that to you guys, something you work on, obviously, with the video quality is we've talked about the word quality as an industry for, you know, we're about 24 years old now as an industry. But let's say we've been talking about it really for the last 15, but nobody defines it. What is quality? Well, the great news is, news is now we have companies that are specifically defining QOE with a methodology. Now their methodology might be different from another company, which is okay, but at least they're starting to define it. We have actual KPIs that are saying, here's how we define quality. And more importantly, here's how we define it to a business metric like churn, but we're only just starting. What's considered good video today or good, good transcoding. I don't know. Depends who you ask. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's it's a very interesting comment. We um, just presented uh, a couple papers at SPIE, um, an image science conference. Uh, maybe you're familiar with it. And sure, uh, yeah. w- one of them, w- one of them was on our core technology uh, content adapted bitrate, and you know, I think everybody's fairly aware. Um, but another was on something on a tool that we developed for ourselves to use internally to do large scale um, subjective testing of video quality. And, uh, and, and, and again, you know, you've brought this up a lot, Dan, about scale, you know, the word scale, it's like, it's one thing to do an experiment, you know, kind of in isolation. It's another thing to really roll it out. Um, but what's interesting about your video quality comments and is that, um, we presented this paper and, um, our CABR paper, of course, you know, lots of people were interested in one more information, but this, but this tool that we built, I, I mean, drawer, you were there. Um, yeah. everybody was like, just, you know, proverbially beating down the door, like, tell us more, tell us more. How can we build it? Let what do you have? It. It. <laughs> yeah. Can you build it for us? What, you know? And we're like, we're just, we're kind of sharing this as a service to the industry, you know, because we run into the exact same thing where, yeah. you, you know, there's, and, a and I'm not surprised they love it, right? They want to hear from you. What are you seeing? How can you build it? How can we measure this stuff? Measurement is huge. And part of the problem with measurement is, Take the Super Bowl, take the World Cup, take, you know, we're hearing all this stuff that Hotstar, Hotstar with Cricket, it did 15, 16 million simultaneous that's users. Right. Yeah. And I go, hey, that's great. But part of me goes, who cares? Because we're, we're 50% of those streams of poor quality. 
Yeah, like, exactly. why won't yeah. any of these companies put out our buffering rate for all the streams were 2%. Mm-hmm. Our time to first frame was X. Mm-hmm. They won't share any statistics or data. And that just tells you about something about the industry you're in, which is, and I hate to say this because we're, we're like almost 25 years in. We're only just now starting as an industry with business models that are generating revenue, still not profitable, but generating real revenue sure. with real business models behind them. And we're only just now in the first innings of, of starting a, the discussion around methodology to measure success of a business from a financial and a quality standpoint. It's new. It's new to an industry that's 25 years old, which sounds fascinating, right? How, how can that be 25 years later? But the reality is that's, that's how long it's taken to get here. Is there ever a better time than right now at a peak of where industry has been when you have Disney and you have Apple about to come out with services, and you already have Amazon and Hulu, which is owned by Disney primarily, and Netflix in the market. I mean, we are at the pinnacle in this industry of D to C like we've never seen before because you have pretty much every major media conglomerate platform technology company in the space. You already have Google with YouTube, TV. It's an incredible time to be in the industry. We have so much we can talk about. There's so many exciting things taking place. But again, I'll just go back to the one thing I always – try and say to people is just just be realistic of what's happening in the market set those realistic expectations yeah, that's right and uh and then um thank you for this uh, comment which summarizes uh very well the discussion that that we had today and i really think it's uh it's wonderful that you are bringing this uh, realistic uh, point of view um into the conversation and uh and you know setting these um um, expectations and uh, trying to dive through the hype, which is what we always try to do here at the Video Insiders. So uh, it's really been a wonderful experience uh, talking to you. So uh, thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. I totally appreciate it. I love being on today. I obviously love talking about this stuff. Anybody has any follow-up questions or just wants to yell at me, sure, go ahead. Just go to streammediablog.com. My cell phone number's up there, my email. You're happy to happy to follow up. Yeah, Dan, I, I have to give a shout out to you about that. That's one of the things that's just always blown me away is how, you know, you truly, uh, you really uh, mean when you say I'm here to serve, you know, I mean, who who puts our cell phone right, you know, <laughs> right at the top <laughs> of like such a public blog. It's like, wow. So to all our listeners, call Dan. If you don't know which service to subscribe to, call Dan. And he'll be <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you guys, let, let me just tell you a quick little story. People listening are going to think I'm absolutely out of my mind. Okay. And that's okay. So two days, two days before Black Friday, I did a blog post that said of the 100 TVs being sold, these are the seven best deals in the market right now on Black Friday. And by the way, on Black Friday, if you're at Costco or Walmart and you have a question about which TV to buy, give me a call. Here's my cell phone number. I literally had over 50 consumers call me on Thanksgiving and say, I'm at Walmart. You don't know me. Here's the two TV models I'm looking at. Which one? And I'm like, no, no, no. That one's refresh rate is wrong than this one. And people are just like, I can't believe this dude has, puts his number up there and is talking to strangers on Thanksgiving. But what they forget, right, is now I just collected an amazing amount of consumer information directly from the consumer. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So now I have more content to talk about. I have more to blog about. I have real yeah. world use cases and yeah. they don't realize like I'm not in this space for a paycheck. I'm in this because I love it and I have passion for it. And I want to continue to grow the market because if we grow the market individually, we all grow it together. Yes. So Agreed. for me, 
the more people I speak to, the more content owners I speak to. Now, I may not do it this year for Thanksgiving. I may take a break. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm always available at all times to anybody. I don't screen calls. I answer all calls typically within 24 hours. So you have a question comment i'd love to hear it yeah and i'll give a, a shout out as well for the streaming summit uh you know you were very kind to um uh invite me to moderate uh at nab this year and you know we had an awesome panel and so if anybody is um thinking of going to new york you definitely should go uh check out participate in the streaming summit yeah if you go to nabstreamingsummit.com full details. And Hey, I'm, I'm happy to even just make a special discount code for anybody listening to video insiders for your podcast yeah. as well. Just shoot me an email or something. And I'll give you a discount code. There you go. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dan. We'll do this again. It was really great. Sounds good. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H264 transcoding every month.